Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of your favorite weekly comic book podcast. The only one on the internet, actually. <laughs> the That's not even true. We're the, there are two comics collectives on the internet. <laughs> we just have the comics collective. Because the when Alexis came up with the name, I was like, oh, that's a, that's a good name. And I looked and I was like, oh, someone already has it. But they haven't posted since like June of 2019. So I'm just going to steal it. And so we did. And then they started posting again like three months ago. And I saw that they like followed us and they like bookmarked us on Anchor. I was like, they're keeping keeping tabs on us. Because our thing is bigger than their thing now, even though we stole the name from them. I was like, I was like, damn, we're the Mark Zuckerberg of comic podcasts. The the hidden lore. I did not know. I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know you brought me onto a pirated ship. Yo ho, me maybe. <laughs> Flying the Jolly Roger, I had no idea. Welcome to the Black Pearl. <laughs> My favorite bit of lore is that there's a whole podcast that this was that just stopped and then was changed without any. It's like people are like, I'm going to go back in the backlog. It's like, it's going to have a different name and a completely different cast. I, this is misleading, folks. <laughs> <laughs> oh all oh, the old episodes are so much fun they're so I, much fun i will never listen to them ever <laughs> i'm sure i said some shit i disagree with now uh, just men just men men disgusting never not even once i did go not even a single time <laughs> i did go back to listen to the very first episode and i'm curious why i recorded it in an aquarium I'm sitting there talking about Batman the Long Halloween like, this is one of the greatest comics that's ever happened. Meanwhile, I'm in Lex Luthor's aquarium, sharks swimming around me. It's the worst audio quality I've ever heard in my life. Oh, to be in Lex Luthor's aquarium. (laughs) It's just you with a snorkel inside the actual aquarium. Like, why does he want me here? There's actually... um... Not to get on topic here for a second, but in the in the book, in the intro to um, Quiver, Kevin Smith wrote a little bit about it. He was talking about how he had um, a friend of his teach him, take him out and teach him how to shoot um, archery. And he said, like, well, this is something that makes sense. He's like, I just want you to know if I'm write, ever writing Aquaman for any reason. Just know I'm not going to stick my head in a fish tank and find out what it's like to talk to fish. <laughs> He's like, but this I feel like I can move myself in. So that's good. That's that's funny. That, that I was mean- Lex Luthor's Aquarium. Just I mean, to. speaking of Aquaman Burns, Peacemaker just <laughs> nailing your boy. And what did you think of the first three episodes of Peacemaker? I, I'm so mad because I promised myself, like, I'm not going to watch this. I don't need to watch Peacemaker. There's no reason for this show to exist. I don't care about it. But then freaking um, Zingy on Twitter started sending pictures of um, Harcourt from it. And it's like, you're going to give in eventually. I'm like, I'm not that weak. I'm exactly that weak. <laughs> it's a combination of her existence and... Um, <laughs> the theme song which everyone was complaining about on twitter and i watched i'm like this is the best advertisement the show's had so far this is the first thing that's got me interested in it and i listened to the song like all day yesterday i'm like an hour right car an hour long car ride home and i just decided to myself fine i'll watch the first 
fucking episode and see what I think. And I watched the first episode. I'm like, oh shit, now I have to keep going. It's it's something. I'm not sure if I'm in love territory yet, but it's definitely a very strong like. We we talked about it a little bit on the, a little bit on the phone yesterday about how it's a really good satire in the way that the people who know it's satire are going to love it for that. But also the people who are too dumb to not realize it's satire are the same people it's making fun of. So that's going to be a really great experience. I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's frankly, it's a great time. Mm-hmm. Like I, I also didn't think I would really like it, but I was like, you know what? I have liked the stuff James Gunn does with superheroes. And I was like, I liked both the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. I liked the Suicide Squad. So, like, I'll give them a chance. And I watched that first episode. And I think if you listen to this podcast, you know, I don't really like superhero TV. <laughs> so like, I'm like the Grinch up on the hill. Like, yep. I, I don't like these Disney Plus shows. And <laughs> so it just, it feels nice to like a superhero show again. I... I'm basically the worst kind of nerd where I've picked three types of entertainment and everything else. I'm like, I just don't have time for it. I read comic books, I read novels, and I have an alarm going off in the background. <laughs> you are a professional, I believe is what you meant to say. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I So I read comics, I read novels, and I watch movies. And TV and video games just get like shunted to the side. As much as I'm like, I'm sure I'd love you, but who's got the damn time? When I look at like a playtime on a video game, it's like 48 hours. I was like, jump off a bridge. Are you kidding me? 48 hours for one thing. That's, oh, that's going to be 40. That's going to be trying to find all the Riddler trophies when I start streaming Batman next week. Everyone. Anne is going to be a video game streamer. I'm so mad. Like and subscribe to her Twitch. Yeah. Twitch is just simply Anne Talks Comics. It's. You know, keep it nice and simple. It's on brand. Everything's good. I actually used the um the image that you um got um why why can't I think of the word? <laughs> the the birthday Captain Marvel picture that you had commissioned. Commissioned. That's the kind yeah. of yeah, it's I a use good that one. as a profile picture. I love it. It's so great. It's a good one. Um yeah, that's from Karen X Men fan on Twitter. Um they have excellent excellent work it's so so good it's so good oh but are you gonna be tuning into the stream because probably probably not (laughs) (laughs) i love you i love you i'll support you i will tell everyone else too Uh but i I can't lie to you i no (laughs) video games not for you see they super were for a little while and then i had a villain origin story so once upon a time, about 160 pounds ago, I was a seventh grader. <laughs> and as a seventh grader, I had no friends and a PlayStation 3. A perfect a perfect setup, really. I downloaded the, I think it was new then, video game, Skyrim. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and I blinked and it was ninth grade. And I had logged hundreds of hours into Skyrim. I, I was, I had done everything. I, it was like that episode of The Office where Dwight has second life and then he has second, second life. That was me fucking raising a family in Skyrim as a ninth grader. Like, hello. Hmm. I was running the town of Whiterun. 
I was I had had a divorce and I was on to my second marriage thinking oh about building God. a house. <laughs> what, what can a video game character do that makes you divorce them? I was I was like, man, I love this video game. And so between seventh and ninth grade, I got a little more handsome. And so all of a sudden I was getting female attention that I did not understand at all. So this girl asked to come over and hang out, and I was like, well, I'll be playing Skyrim this afternoon, but you're welcome to watch. And she was like, okay, okay, sure. And so this girl comes over to my house and sits on the couch beside me and watches me play Skyrim for like 40 minutes in like silence, basically. And, and then I was like, I have to go to the bathroom. And she was like, okay. And so they get up to the bathroom and I come back out and it's on the create a character screen. And I was like, what's going on? And she was like, oh, I thought it'd be fun for you to teach me how to play. So I, I decided to start a new file. I was like, oh, okay. Um, let me, let me just look at something. And I am a crazy person that just always just overwrote the same file. I had one file. And she overwrote my file to start her new character. And I wept real tears. I like crocodile tears streaming down my face. Like, what did you do? You deleted my game. And she's watching me like, dude, I was trying to get ninth grade laid here. Like maybe a kiss. And now I'm watching this child scream and cry in front of me over a video game. I'm a bounce. Um... I'm going to call my mom to come pick me up because, again, we're 15 years old. And I just, like, I mourned Skyrim for, like, probably, like, three days. I tried to start again, and it just felt futile. I was, like, I was too far to go back to all this garbage. And it, like, really, really soured any sort of narrative video game for me. (laughs) But I was, like... It was like this moment where I was like, none of this is real. Like all this accomplishment, all this, like whatever I felt was a file in a, in a game. And so like, I still like video games for the most part, but it takes a lot for me to commit to a game. It has to be like an arcade style or like a fighter game. I really like platformers, Mm -hmm. but like the only narrative video games I've played in recent memory are the Spider-Man games I thought were great. God of War on PS4 I thought was amazing. And Red Dead Redemption 2 was the closest thing I got to Skyrim addicted again. I was like, it's yeehaw Skyrim. (laughs) And so I forced myself to stop. I was like, this is a dark path. No way, Jose. Because like like video games are like heroin for me, frankly. I have no self-control. Like when I downloaded Stardew Valley for the first time, I didn't go to college for 10 days. I just dipped out in the middle of college and came back. Hair a little longer and a a beard. Like... (laughs) Oh, I farmed too much. That was tragic. I know like this audio only so no one could see it, but I was going through it just now. I was freaking out because that was going so many different ways. I, oh my God. I thought you were going to say you went to the bathroom when she came, when you came back, she was just going to be gone. Like she just ghosted you or something, but somehow, no, it's worse. It's so much worse. I felt so bad for you. I felt so bad for her. This is, oh my God. I'm so glad we saved that for the the show. That was fantastic. I'd like to be clear. She is the victim of this story. It it wasn't me. (laughs) 
thinking like um the the end of King Kong, which is it was Beauty killed the Beast. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, that's it's exactly true. Um, so yeah, my my relationship with video games, I have a Nintendo Switch that I pull out every three months to mm-hmm. play like half an hour of whatever video games on my mind, and that's it, Chief. That's all. So. I'm jealous. Every time I see a video game, I'm like, that looks fun. I bet I'd love it. I just. Oh, that's me right now being too poor to buy a PS5 and everyone's out there like, oh, these great, these games are so great. I'm like, I'm sure they are. I'm sure you have a blast. (laughs) You know what else is expensive? Comics. Comics are so freaking expensive. And this comic, did I even introduce myself? I'm Anne, by the way, if anyone cares. (laughs) And I, I'm Dallas, by the way. That Look, was the long intro. Yeah, um, that was the Snyder cut of this episode. You're welcome. And that was the nightmare sequence, exactly. actually. That's Lexi is the um, <laughs> Lexi is the glue that holds us together and keeps us sane. And this is what happens when she's not here. She is the meowth of our Team Rocket. Exactly. Frankly, we are Team Rocket. We have a bimbo, a himbo, and a cat. <laughs> i think that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me that's i i mean i one of my favorite memes recently was she her they them cool hat and it was team rocket and ash and (laughs) i i love that i laughed laughed like five straight minutes it's like that rules so hard That's also, I'm, I'm looking at a panel of Green Arrow right now, and I'm like, that's just Dinah Lance, Connor Hawk, Oliver Queen. You're, yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's actually a strangely good intro to this, this right? episode. Um, so anyone that follows our schedule, and by that I mean Glenn Machette, who, who always knows our schedule. Love you, Glenn. Um, Glenn, you're the best. This was supposed to be a bone episode, the mm-hmm. beginning of the bone saga. That sounds like a porno. Um, yeah, <laughs> the beginning of bone, which was Alexis's pick that we were all very excited for, and then Ding Ding Zippy Magoo <laughs> called text us last week and was like, "So I'm gonna be out of town, and so we can't. We probably shouldn't start bone while I'm not on the show." Hashtag and, oops. Yeah, I was like fucking whoops <laughs> it's like mortal Kombat. that's the best part of the mortal Kombat movie is when he goes fucking whoops <laughs> in an australian accent that's how i felt about alexis telling me we're not doing bone this week and so i turned it over to ann banana man to pitch a comic she thought i'd like and so ann what comic are we talking about today Okay, so today the comic I pitched was Green Arrow Quiver, which is the collection of the first 15 issues written by Kevin Smith, Phil Hester, and um, Andy Parks. It's the rebirth of Green Arrow. This was, you know, post-Death of Superman, and DC's like, wait, we can bring people back from the dead? Why don't we just bring more people back from the dead? And so, like, everyone they started killing off in the 90s, they're like, okay, let's bring them back one by one and one of those characters on that list was oliver queen and to 
get this job done, they handed it over to Kevin Smith, who is famous for a lot of his work, specifically his films. Um, And yeah, he took care of the script and figured out the best way to bring Oliver Queen not only back into the modern DCU, but also the way that made the most sense, at least for him. As far as convoluted um, rebirth stories go, this one... I'm not, it might be one of the less convoluted because it requires the least amount of retconning. I will say, as far as it goes, while this is a, a dense, weird web, yeah. this is like the most comic booky bring back. Everything you need is in the pages. Because oh, yeah. like mm-hmm. this was my first Green Arrow comic I've ever read that wasn't Green Lantern, Green Arrow by Danny O'Neill and Neil Adams. So the fact that that seemed to be the only reference point you really needed, I was like, man, I'm an expert. But like, I felt the amnesia that Oliver Queen had. And they're like, you don't remember when you killed? And he's like, nope. And I was like, me neither. I don't know what you're talking about. But like to Kevin Smith's uh, credit, I feel like I had everything I needed to enjoy this book and the mystery was compelling and I understood what happened with no nothing outside of Quiver. So like that's a huge, huge plus that a lot of comics can't say. Good. That was actually like part of this great experiment because I wanted to see how you would handle this as your first like green arrow story. Because I believe thinking back, this was my first green arrow story. I had been introduced to the character when I first started reading comics through event pages and through the pages of Green Lantern because he shows up for a little bit there. I think Green Lantern Rebirth, I read before this, and he has a pretty seminal role in that. And that might have been what spawned me like to invest investigate more into the character, because I really liked how he was written there. And he was always this character for me who seemed really, really fun. And just like, I, I need more of him. I need him on the page, because every time he is on the page, it's a blast. He's sharing off like one-liners. He just seems like a genuinely nice person, so I want to know more about this character. And reading this for the first time so many years ago it took me a little bit because i hadn't read the denny o'neill stuff this was the unlike you this was the very very first oliver queen book so it does take a little bit but it did get me invested enough to keep going and this whole run and we'll get to more of it eventually when lexi gets back because there's the next arc is one of my favorite green arrow stories ever one of my favorite comic stories ever and i'm very excited to see how everyone reacts to that one it's it's such a great, great run. And looking back, this is like the perfect starting place. One of my favorite ways they've ever brought a character back from the dead. It has its faults, as all stories do. But overall, this remains one of my favorite comics. And I'm really glad that it seems like you liked it. So, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. I did like it. I It's been an interesting week because I read this mm-hmm. and a big chunk of Brian K. Vaughn's Ex Machina because I weirdly been like, I'm going to read all the Brian K. Vaughn I haven't read yet in preparation for Saga to come out, because that's the kind of fan I am. And if you don't know about Brian K. Vaughn, Brian K. Vaughn loves to be at the forefront of politics of his particular time, and that means it always ages poorly. Always. (laughs) Without fail. There's always going to be something that you're like, man, is that the white male liberal way of explaining that issue? And... You just you kind of have to accept that that's one of the things, or you have to not like his work. And I, so it was a weird week for me where I like, I would read things in these books that was like, er, but I also was still having a ton of fun with the books. 
and like Peacemaker was sort of the same way. I just feel like I had a lot of media that I was like, huh, I don't want to tell anyone on Twitter.com how much I'm liking this right now, <laughs> but I'm liking this right now. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's... And... Go for it. No, I... I don't know. I so it was it was fun to read this comic book with all of its warts. I I'm very glad I read it. I'm very glad I happened to own a paper copy because once upon a time I was at a comic store and I said, "What should I buy on Twitter?" And you said I should buy this, and it was there on the shelf. And I went, "Okay," and I grabbed awesome. it. So you double whammy. Anne is the reason I own and read this book. Fantastic! I my influence. It's just. Chef's kiss. Uh, Anne Brenneman, uh, noted Twitter comics influencer. <laughs> I, I always laugh when people say that. I am not that big yet. I am not making that much of a. I can't be. There's no way. But if I am, DC hit me up. Start sending me paychecks. Anyways, um, <clears throat> yeah. What you bring up about the stories? It's so interesting the way it tries to tackle a lot. And in the intro, there's um, a little bit where Kevin Smith talks about where he's like, I was trying to approach the way that this character was, he's, he's always been rooted in this very deep sense of liberalism. And like that really got popularized with that Denny O'Neill run. He said, I want to address how views expressed in that were liberal for the time, but outdated now and showing what it's like compared to liberaliz- liberalism in the modern era. And it's interesting because I feel like he definitely did a great job showing how like outdated some of the liberal ideas that Ollie had back then were, but I'm not sure he did such a great job catching up for the modern era, except for the ways that he made the modern era slightly problematic in some ways. That's, that's about all I gathered from that aspect. What's really interesting about like the modern era is because of, I feel like because of the internet and because of how the internet makes things immortal. 2000 feels like the modern era where it's it's 22 mm-hmm. years ago you know what i mean yeah. like i think mm-hmm. in 2000 if you had said 1978 no one would have been like oh that was yesterday because like because of the way the information traveled the way that like media was preserved it mm-hmm. it was 20 years ago it was oh that's old and so sometimes i think even when I'm reading a comic from like 1995, for whatever reason, I'm like, this is a little old. I can be more forgiving of it. Yeah. But if I read something from 2004 that isn't like the most up to date based on last week's revelations about social justice, I'm like, you little son of a bitch comic. <laughs> Big dumb, dumb idiot. Big dumb, dumb. Didn't understand where we would be. And so it's just, it's fascinating to me to read from this era of comics because- for me, it seemed like the most problematic era of comics, like 2000 yeah. to 2008. I'm like, you guys did everything wrong, every single thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's actually true or if that's just my perception or if that's just, you know what I mean? I, I don't know how to parse the validity of that feeling. Oh, no, I completely get it because like that's actually one of the things I've realized, like the more and more comics I read, the more and more stuff like that interests me. And like, I'm really fascinated by how like comics have spoken eras like people are like oh well this is post-crisis this is pre-flashpoint this is post-flashpoint stuff like that but they also really have those unspoken eras we can tell that behind the scenes editorial mandates shift what should be focused on what should be talked about what characters need to be in the forefront what characters need to fall back to the side and that's the stuff that you 
have to pick up from reading and the more you read the more you pick up on stuff like that and it's definitely it's stuff like in marvel comics where after 9-11 you can definitely pick up on an uptick of like the grim and the gritty and a lot of these nationalistic um themes that get printed into their work and it's just like i want to eventually just like kind of sit down and make up like timelines like this is when we started seeing an uptick of stuff like this this is when we started seeing stuff like this you know fall to the side this is when women were being really sexualized this is when gay people started becoming more prominent in the media it's so fascinating to see stuff like this because there's moments in this that remind me of like things that would happen later on like from the get-go we're told that one of oliver's best friends in the series is going to be a gay man and for the early 2000s that would definitely have been more uncommon had he actually turned out to be a gay man and um i'm like oh there's the 2000s there it is i found it mm-hmm. and um just the I, lo- way- I oh. loved right after they tell you he's gay they foreshadow super hard that he's the person that's kidnapping and murdering little boys i was yeah. like oh boy Yep. Oh, oh dear. I was, actually, I was thinking about that because I remembered the I remember the twist from the first time through. I'm like, wait, are they really going to turn the the gay character into? The, oh no, they they yoinked us, so it's I got debated. It's fine. He's straight. <laughs> it's, it's the straight guy killing people. We're fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's an interesting beast where it just fits in with everything. I think it does some things pretty well. Um some things not so much and we'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about some of the female characters later i know you specifically had some things you wanted to mention there Mm -hmm. but overall as a story you said you liked it was there anything that stood out to you as unique or special i thought kevin smith writes a great oliver queen oh yeah Mm -hmm. like i i loved this character i cared about how he was doing how he was feeling Mm -hmm. i I knew the story. Like I had listened to comic book couples counseling talk about it, which by the way, their month on green arrow and black canary rules Mm -hmm. so hard. High recommend. We were just on their show last week, everyone. But if you go back in their feed a little bit, they covered a lot of green arrow comics and I think it was some of their best work yet. So quick plug for some friends of the show. They're so great. But like, so like I knew the, at least the, the ghost and the quit, the soul and the quiver of it all. Mm-hmm. But I was still intrigued because I wanted to know how Oliver would react to these things. I wanted to know. Mm-hmm. It felt very lived in and character driven in right. a way that I found really satisfying. And that's really interesting because there's a lot of Kevin Smith isms that really define the character for, if not a decade more than that. It's, um green arrow has been a character who's been kind of redefined several different points in his life and there's several different like all the runs you read if you read like the grell like the longbow hunters run it's going to read so much different than this which is going to read so much differently than the dennis o'neill stuff and it's just i can't tell if it's because he's a character they couldn't really pin down or because he they weren't sure what they wanted him to be and we can see that because he switches from a character like this throughout all the 2000s into something more like arrow for the 2010s and we see a more serious take a younger but more serious take show up in the new 52 before eventually rebirth kind of bringing us back to the same 2000s version that we've that a lot of people know and love because this was a very very popular run this sold i believe over a million copies it's a really really popular book and 
I think this version of Green Arrow is the same one we see show up in like the Green Arrow animated short, which if you haven't seen is absolutely fantastic. It's part of the DC showcase. They always do really great work. This is also the same Green Arrow we really see show up in Injustice and in that spinoff universe. And it's the one where people who like to critique Arrow a lot, they're the one, this is the version that people are like, I would like to see this Green Arrow show up because he's the one that feels the most modernized, but also the most fun and the most true to the original intention of the character, which is, you know, the Robin Hood vigilante steal from the rich, give to the poor type character. What's really interesting is reinvention is soaked into Green Arrow from the Silver Age, the origin of the island, and mm-hmm. he's basically Batman. That was Jack Kirby in as, really? a, as a side gig for DC in the Silver Age. Yeah, I was reading the uh, biography about Jack Kirby, mm-hmm. and they were just like listing all the things that he doesn't get mentioned for this, but also he did the modern origin of Green Arrow. I just did not know that. Because Green Arrow was a nobody character. They were mm-hmm. like, we can't get this Robin Hood to stick. And he was like, just make him Batman. And they're like, really? He's like, yeah, look. And so he just like sketched out the origin of Green Arrow with the island and becoming Batman. And they were like, huh, okay. And ta-da, it worked. It spawned the whole CW TV verse. <laughs> you know? That guy couldn't help but be a genius, even on like throwaway paycheck things that he did. <laughs> That's beautiful. I I also love that this character, like the the Green Batman, was the character that spawned the the Arrowverse. Because I keep thinking back to that Legends of Tomorrow clip where they're fighting a giant like teddy bear or something like that. I'm like, good. This is exactly what Jack Kirby would have wanted. <laughs> exactly. I yeah. I actually I think I should mention I was a huge fan of Arrow before really? I got into comics. Yeah, like. Right after my trajectory with comics was interesting because I watched all the Marvel movies mm-hmm. up through like Iron Man 2, I want to say. So like kind of first and second wave before getting into any comics. Mm-hmm. And then Arrow comes out. I watched the shit out of Arrow season one and season two. The, whatever season the Deathstroke season is. That was season two. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I only watched the first two seasons. Loved and then right before, right after the Avengers movie comes out, mm-hmm. I go, okay, I need to get into these comic books. I need to check them out. And so in like 2013, I started to dabble and get into mm-hmm. comic books. And then I immediately started to like Arrow and things like that less. Because I was like, oh, you're kind of <laughs> bad versions of what I like. <laughs> yeah. But so Green Arrow was secretly one of the first superheroes I really had a deep dive in, even though I've never scratched the itch for his comics until now so it was it was fun reading this as well because i was like i weirdly know a lot about you without (laughs) ever reading your comics oh that's so cool we basically had like the same freaking secret origin i got into um all the comics in 2013 too right after the avengers because also watching the avengers i'm like i should really get more into this stuff Mm -hmm. and it took me a little bit because i had to find the right comics marvel comics in the 2000s were definitely not clicking with me um i tried reading like stuff like the kree scroll war and that was when i found out that older comics really took a bit for me to get used to (laughs) just because um it's weird when characters are like describing their every thought out loud and it takes like five minutes to get through like one panel i'm like okay next but then once i find those stories that click like i found superman comics i found aquaman comics and it's funny because i was watching smallville after injustice came out so like i really want to know more about superman then i started reading superman comics i'm like smallville is so weird now (laughs) i can't do anything right and i just gave up on it and yeah it's 
what what was that like for you? Because I know for me, seeing the version of the character that's in Arrow was definitely like a lot of like cognitive dissonance for me. I'm like, this doesn't feel right. Cause I knew the, the 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 comic version first. I knew like the Injustice version first before I watched Arrow. So how was it for you going the opposite direction? Oh, see, I feel like I've only it's only been up from here. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I right. I was introduced to the character and I liked it. I liked Arrow. I was I was an edgelord 13-year-old boy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what the hell are we talking about? I guess I was probably 15 at that point. But same kid that cried over Skyrim was like, Arrow's such a badass. <laughs> you failed this city. It's so cool how he shot arrows and he his arrows could kill people. And that is cool. He's like Batman if Batman had nuts. and Which weirdly is my take now as well, but in a completely Ooh. different way. <laughs> Green Arrow is Batman if Batman ever got laid. Um, <laughs> there's, there's my take, everybody. No, Batman gets laid. It's just Green Arrow's good at sex. True, true. I, see, I don't, I don't believe it. I feel like Batman has a bad case of uh, <laughs> just he ejaculates too soon every time. Like, I don't think Batman's ever had a successful. That's my own headcanon. I don't think you can be Batman and lay pipe. Like, I, it can't. (laughs) It's not possible. (laughs) Issues run too deep. Yeah, like, he's chasing Catwoman across the rooftops. Mm -hmm. He finally catches her instantly. Just wet, wet bat suit. And she's like, again? Again? This whole cat and mouse? He's like, that's why he likes catching bad guys so much. (laughs) How he climaxes. Yeah, you really think Catwoman keeps leaving him because of editorial? No. No. She's escaping. No, Catwoman's like, I gotta go find somebody to eat my box. Batman hasn't given me an orgasm in ten years. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. And frankly, the exact opposite is true of Green Arrow, where Black Canary's like, I could do so much better. I could do... But, like, the man is a wizard in the bedroom. (laughs) He's like, I might be an emotionally unavailable... Not that compelling of a boyfriend, but boy, howdy, do I know my way around Sherwood Forest. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I just, I love this is a comic where he goes down on her not once, but twice throughout two, the entire arc. Two times. Two times. Good for him. Um, friend of the pod, Celise from Twitter.com and from my, from my Discord DMs, mainly, um... <laughs> uh, he his question that he wanted to make sure we answered was who do we think eat eats box better green arrow or batman and oh the answer is clear yeah obviously thanks to Lise for making sure we're covering the important topics yeah exactly not batman he even has like handlebars on top of his helmet and he's still bad at it I can't. I can't anymore. Oh my god. Okay. It's like in Batman Begins. She's like, come. She's like a little. He's like, the neck doesn't move. <laughs> he goes, and she's like, that's the problem, nice able, dumbass. It'd be nice to be able to turn my head. Yeah, that's why he wanted it in oh, the to dark. See, to see bad guys. That, yes. Why do you think Catwoman didn't show up till the third movie? <laughs> Gotta he have said a little it should bit be of... great against cats. Ah, no! I'm never wrong. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I'm glad you are. Sometimes I'm oh. glad you're never wrong. All I gotta say though is like I don't know how Green Arrow's so good at it with that elaborate of. I'm so glad you hair. said it. I think about it way like, too much. 
I do too. I'm like, I mean, maybe to you, but for the children at home listening, for the seven-year-olds listening, unplug your headphones for 15 seconds. If I'm not clean shaven, it's ow, 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 ow. Too pokey, ow, ow. It's not really working. Maybe he like moist, like he conditions the goatee. I just say, I'm like, Dinah, Dinah, what's going on? How does... Explain. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I can't say. Yeah, that really was my thought too when he like went down. I was like, all that facial hair has got to, just kind of seems like a rug burn waiting to happen. (laughs) I don't think we should have, I don't think we should have read this comic. (laughs) We should have read this comic without parental guidance, you know? We're not mature enough to talk about this book. We're 36 minutes in and I don't think we've talked about the plot. I don't think so either. Do you want to start talking about some of the characters in this book? Do you want to talk a little bit about the journey that Ollie goes through here? And I, I, don't, I haven't even given a summary of the damn plot yet. Should I go ahead and give a summary? Yeah, of the plot? yeah. Maybe do like a two-minute summary, and then I'll do like a two-minute what I liked how Ollie okay. transformed. Awesome. So for anyone who hasn't read the comic yet, I highly recommend it. The plot of the story is that after the events in Zero Hour and the final night in which Hal Jordan's Parallax, the evil version of him possessed by the fear entity, kind of tried to rewrite time and pull some crisis level shenanigans, he kind of failed, but he redeemed his villainous ways by reigniting the heart of the sun in Final Night, which was really great for him. But before he went, he kind of wanted to do something good. So he did something good and inadvertently brought back the return of Oliver Queen, the green arrow who had passed sometime before the events in that story. And what happens next is a journey as this version of Oliver Queen remembers very little since the eighties in the late eighties, early nineties, and has no recollection of dying. A lot of the things he did later in his life, a lot of the people he hurt and how some of his relationships fell apart. And as he's struggling to find himself, There's a killer on the loose who might be looking to use his body for certain nefarious purposes. And yeah, it's a story about this man not just returning to life, but also figuring out what he wants from it, how to be his best self. And it gets into a lot of really interesting existential issues about um, (laughs) how you can face up to problems you've had before and all that sort of fun stuff. And it's as far as I know, that might sound really convoluted, but as far as superhero reboots go, it's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. It's it's not always where it's just like the god entity brought me back, so I'm back. So mm-hmm. that is the first arc in this book, and the second arc follows a fully restored Green Arrow as he's teaming up a lot with his son Connor Hawk, who was the Green Arrow while he was gone, and follows them as they just take out crime in Star City. But everything changes once a new villain named Automatopoeia shows up to wreak some havoc on Oliver's life, reminding him that life is definitely a lot more painful than death. And that's the entire arc, the the entire 15 issues. That was a good, I mean, people, if you want someone to write the the back of the trade, call up (laughs) Anne Brenneman. That was, when she said life is more painful than death. Chills, 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 and a check from DC it. Comics. Congratulations! Here's your two. Du- here's your two bucks. Exactly. You, you wrote fifty words. 
I got a check for $9.15 the other day, and I was like, this is not worth my time. <laughs> it's like, have you ever heard of Venmo? Just, jeez. I, I was like, what? $9 check. Like, hello, I'd like to cash this, please. $9.18, please. If anyone hands me coins, I want to fight them. <laughs> like, what is this? Pirate times? Get over here, me matey. <laughs> is this a shilling? Is exactly. That what this is? Exactly. I'm like, this isn't England. We don't have pretend money. Put it on my little plastic card and we'll pretend that we have an economy. Move along. <laughs> but anyway, speaking of shillings, Robin Hood, Green Arrow, great transition to Alice. <laughs> A plus. Uh, a plus. Oof, what a guy. So what's fun about this, granted convoluted uh, story, is that it it allows us to reconcile with the fact of how much Green Arrow had changed. Mm-hmm. Basically, it feels like Kevin Smith was like, we have our ideal character back here, and it feels like a lot of dark shit has happened to him since this point. And so we would love to bring the fun back. And then slowly reintroduce the dark into this character that is fun. So like it doesn't feel like he's ruled by what's going on in the story anymore. But it it kind of feels like he has to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Which is a really fun balance. I don't feel like it struck a lot. It's, I couldn't help but compare this over and over again to Green Lantern Rebirth. Um, where uh, Jeff Johns brings back Hal Jordan from the only interesting thing Hal Jordan ever did. Be Parallax. And I'll, I'll die on that hill. And he's like, you never did anything wrong, you sweet baby cop. It was actually an evil parasite named Parallax that did everything wrong. And you're perfect. And he kissed him on the forehead and he sent him off to go be a rainbow warrior. And not in a fun way either. Not not an interesting rainbow <laughs> no, warrior. No. no, this isn't the JLQ. This is Green Lantern. And that... I'm sad that that is the version of bringing a character back that's stuck instead of this, mm-hmm. where this feels like an effort to bring a character back to center while still acknowledging the past. That yeah. feels like bringing back an ideal that never existed and ignoring everything we don't like. And for me, the green arrow bit has been much more compelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that makes i actually hadn't thought about that that's a really good point and i'm not sure why it makes more i guess when you do kind of kill thousands it gets a little harder to justify that being oh you're fine that was just you know everyone has bad days that becomes a little bit more difficult to justify. can we acknowledge that green lantern rebirth which is celebrated is just the awful retcon of gene gray coming back to life the editorial invented in the 1980s for marvel is the it was never gene all along it was the phoenix that blew up that planet and killed thousands she is absolved of all guilt because a cosmic parasite infected her and we're going to set her back to how she was before all that nonsense which was the only interesting thing we ever did with her that's another connection i hadn't even made that was wow never (laughs) my my comics illiteracy is showing wow do i even read comics uh, I'm just I'm on a little bit of a kick right now of Jeff Johns as a hack, and <laughs> yeah, when someone comes out and is like full racist, you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of on that kick now. Yeah, well, no, the other day I said something about how Jeff Johns writes comics about comics, and I don't like it. And someone was like, you have to admit his comics are great, and I was like, do I? 
<laughs> do I have to admit that? No, I don't. And here's a thousand reasons why. <laughs> yeah, the reason, the, the way a Jeff Johns comic hasn't made me even smile since 2016. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's oh. kind of, it really reminds me of the Onion articles, like Jeff Johns not talented enough to separate art from artist. screaming so we're definitely not covering his jsa on this run sorry to report. sorry folks <laughs> sorry um yeah th- there's a lot here that ollie does that's so so fascinating because for a lot of the arc um spoilers for anyone who hasn't read it the reason he's incomplete is because he is a body without a soul when hal jordan brought him back he asked the soul like hey you want any part of this and ollie's like actually no i'm like chilling in heaven with like <laughs> MLK and like Gandhi's here for some reason, so like we're just we're just vibing. I do I do like Gandhi and Christian Heaven. That was fun. That was so. <laughs> I was like, that, word, honestly, it, word, Kevin Smith. That is funny as hell. The funnier part was the fact that Jason Todd was hanging up there, hanging out. <laughs> up there. <laughs> like, the idea of Jason Todd and Gandhi like swapping notes in heaven. <laughs> Gandhi's like a crowbar? Really? What what happened? He's he's talking to like all the great martyrs of history. They're like, I died for a cause. He's like, I got blown up by a clown. Joan of Arc is up there like, I was burned because I had the audacity to speak. He's like, I was blown up as a plot device because a bunch of people hated me. (laughs) My my death was called in. (laughs) If your death gets called in, you don't go to heaven. I'm sorry. Jason Todd did not go to heaven. False advertising. Also, pretty sure canonically, he got brought back pretty shortly after he died, didn't he? I don't care about Jason Todd. I don't know. I hate that guy. I hate him. I Every time he's on the page, I'm like, gosh, you were better dead. I hate you. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure most of the people they show in heaven actually get retconned later as like not being in heaven. Like Barry gets retconned as just being in like the speed force later. <laughs> but Barry still shows up in heaven. He's like... Oh. That's silly Wally out there discovering things like this, like Speed Force. I knew about it all along. I knew about it all along because I invented it. I invented cool. Captain of cool, Barry Allen. Oh, I'm still thinking about the panel where MLK is just hanging out talking to Abe Lincoln. I'm just, (laughs) that's not a real panel in a DC comic. You broke me. You broke me. Yeah. Um. There's... Speaking of all the characters actually being dead up in heaven, this feels like the last era of comics that had meaningful continuity. Like, hold mm-hmm. on with me here for a second. Yeah. When you read Grant Morrison's JLA, which I had to keep thinking of because Phil Hester also draws that, and I'm, I'm a shill for Grant Morrison. Really? The, yeah, I don't know if you knew this. Shocked. Even in their efforts to bring back the iconic Seven, Grant didn't get to bring them back at the Silver Age ideal that we do mm-hmm. now. There was it wasn't a true reset. Superman came in with a with blue and then with a mullet after that. The Flash was Wally West. Green Lantern was Kyle Rayner. It was an era where it felt like things stuck, 
until like this weird little bridging point where it started to not stick anymore. This is almost like the weird central point of the chiasm, a chiasm being a, a poetry form where it's mirrored perfectly from mm-hmm. a central point. It feels like Green Arrow and Green Lantern Rebirth are like the chiastic point of that makes a lot of sense. Of DC continuity where they're like, why would we ever build up a character like Connor Hawk ever again when we can just bring back Oliver Queen mm-hmm. and all the people that loved him back then will be happy and all the people that never met him will be like, oh, I always wanted to meet this guy. We never have to build up legacy characters again. Yep, that was definitely... I think once they, like... The death of Superman, once they brought back Superman, I think it was <laughs> all cards on the table. We're never doing this again. We're never dropping anyone for any amount of time. And once they realized that, hey, in comics you can do anything, you bring anyone back, it was it was over for legacy characters. And they got punished hard throughout the late 2000s and all of the New 52. And it was only in like Rebirth where they're like, oh wait, people actually liked some of these characters that they grew up reading? What the hell? That's so weird. And Jeff Johns is like, what do you mean not everyone grew up with Barry Allen? What the hell are you talking about? Comics stopped being written in 1970 until I started in 2004. And he screams and cries and poops his pants because he's a baby. Yeah. And the way they kind of treat Connor in here is one of the things I want to get into as well, because it's just this is the beginning of Connor getting forgotten. He gets used a lot in this run coming through. And the next arc, when we get into Archer's Quest, it's probably my favorite Ollie and Connor story because actually utilizing the like there are some benefits to bring back some characters like actually getting to see Connor and Ollie have this father-son relationship that they never had before is really really great and I really like it and it sells a lot in this run for me going forward but it also foreshadows the fact that Connor's going to be forgotten in less than 10 years by DC Comics he's just going to be completely out of the picture even though he was with the JLA even though he had his own comic book runs his own issues going his own storylines he's just going to be sidelined completely and that's you know for a character that's um a person of color he's an asian character he's a black character to just be completely sidelined for you know um generic white guy number 578 it happens so much in the 2000s and this is it's funny because this is one of the only times that jeff johns wasn't solely responsible so that's (laughs) plus there yeah i guess it's interesting that Jeff Johns has come up as much as he had when he has nothing to do with this comic because yeah. like he is so ubiquitous with this era of DC mm-hmm. comics. Yeah, because this was his rise to fame. This was when he started building up a name for himself. I'm pretty sure he was on Hawkman at about this time. I think he was Hawkman, maybe JSA around this period. And that's when he's like building up. And then once he hits Green Lantern, that's when he's like, oh, this is an all-star. This is an all-star name. And then he started getting all the projects after that. If I remember my history correctly. No, I'm pretty sure you're right. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's hard not to talk about this era and the influence that comics like this have had without bringing him up. Because he definitely followed suit. Like Kevin Smith hit this. He hit this. Um, He got up to bat. He hit this book out of the park. And then Jeff Johns came and hit like everything after that i don't know i don't watch baseball (laughs) (laughs) no one watches baseball that's the secret um but yeah do we do we want to talk a little bit about the characters yes because i think that's the strength yeah and i i was trying to get in that we keep getting sidetracked but there's so much to talk about during this 
this time period. It's really fascinating. The arc that Ollie goes on to reclaiming his soul because the version that Hal brings back since the soul didn't want to come hang he's like okay I'm just gonna make the perfect version of you there's gonna be no soul so you know whenever you die you just die which is like the grimmest thing you can tell someone like everyone else has a soul but you don't sucks to suck I guess and um (laughs) he comes back as like the idealized version the version of him before all these things went wrong in his life so it's like what Jeff Johns wanted to do with Hal. He's like, you're a character that's done nothing wrong ever. You're a sweet, innocent child. Go enjoy your life. But as Oliver goes through with the story, he starts, you know, he knows something's missing and he wants to find out, one, why he's back and two, why something is missing. And when he finds out, it's not something he's thrilled about. And the resolution of the story comes when he gets that full self of him back. And when the version of Ollie that's, you know, thinks it's over and thinks that he has nothing left to say on earth realizes that like hey the people you love are still in danger um yeah you made some mistakes before but unless you face up to them the people who loved you most are still going to be paying for those so it's either stay up here where things are good for you or go back and face your own demons deal with it man up go take care of it and i really really respect the oliver queen took that chance to say okay i'm gonna be a better person i'm gonna go back i'm gonna go take care of this even though it does mean pain even though it does mean more loss potentially even though i have everything i want up here i'm gonna return to life because i care about the people that are in my life that were in my life when i was alive even if i hurt them and it's really cool actually that theme does not get lost in the next arc that plays a lot into it and you get to really understand why specifically for connor oliver wanted to come back and that's so so cool and this is such a human thing i think to be able to the the idea of wanting to run away from your past like the embarrassing things like you know those moments we realize like why did i say that why did i do that and just pretending they don't exist is so much easier than facing up to them, going back and apologizing for things. And I think that's the decision that Oliver made in the story is to go back and be a better person than he was before. And it makes her a much better story as well. The very best parts of this comic are the parts where it's messy, where Ollie is nervous to take Dinah out because yep. he doesn't know how it's going to go. <laughs> the parts where you get to see Ollie and Connor create a relationship that they didn't have before. Like all of that is the meat of the story that I love. And it's something that this era of comics did really well. I actually think there was a really big effort to bring people into comics after Marvel's bankruptcy, but they still hadn't decided to just abandon everything to create like artificial jumping on points. And so it, there feels like this magic little moment that's mired with a bunch of other bullshit, but like this magic little moment where they need to explain everything to you, but make it accessible and bring it in. And I think mm-hmm. this comic is a perfect example of how that's possible. Mm-hmm. Where like, I feel like I know Green Arrow so much better because of this comic, but I never felt frustrated or mm-hmm. like it was impenetrable. 
Right. And I think that's a lot of things. That's a big misconception in comics. It's like, if you don't start in the right place, you're going to be so lost. You're never going to understand what's happening. And I think there's some comics that are like that. Like if you try to start reading comics with like Final Crisis or something like that, you're probably going to be a little lost because Final Crisis is one of those comics that I've read maybe 10 times. And I feel like I understand about 95% of it now. And, you know, that's understandable. But for the most part, comics are written in a way to make them accessible and i like that the story shows you everything you need to know at like the level that you need to know it like of course there's more to understand about zero hour and the final night that just reading the story you're not going to get you're not going to understand it unless you go back and read those books but if anything that's just an incentive to go back and read those books so you can get a deeper understanding of that it tells you what you need to know for the story and that's that's what matters and it (laughs) I think it did a great job. I agree. Um, what did you think of the new character Mia that was introduced? So <clears throat> Mia is a character who follows through in this arc. And most of my favorite Mia moments happen, you know, as the story goes on and we get a little bit of foreshadowing here and I don't feel like I'm going to spoil it for you, but she does end up becoming a new speedy. And I really, really like everything that happens with her, but um I just need to give a, you know, a content warning, a trigger warning. There's going to be some discussion. We have to talk a little bit about Mia's, um, her, her sexual assault and everything she was doing just to make a living um, beforehand. It was um, the sexualization of a minor is another big thing we need to, because <laughs> when we get introduced to Mia in the story, she is working as a child prostitute basically how old is she is she 15 or 16 in the story 15 15 and the first scene we see her in is her being led to this really rich guy who is just waiting for her like completely and completely stripped down taking pictures of her and it's just such a big shift i feel like because the first issue is is very comic booky very like hey um, Green Arrow's back from the dead. This is crazy. Isn't this crazy? And then it shifts immediately into what is being set up to be like a, you know, a potential scene of like sexual assault. And it's very, very telling of not just like the era when a lot of stuff like this did happen. Like it feels weird recommending comics from this era because I always feel like I have to give the same trigger warnings and content warnings for anyone who might accidentally stumble in because it's not something that happens in comics in the modern era, I feel like. Like, I can't remember the last time I would have seen a scene like this portrayed specifically in this way, where it's very much a lot of the scene does play out. And it plays out because Green Arrow eventually comes in and saves her and, like, kicks the the rich bozo's ass and leaves him for the cops and all that fun stuff. But it plays out for several pages before Green Arrow ever shows up. And it's one of those situations where it's very difficult because, like, it's a very mature topic. And I think for the most part, Smith does an okay job at portraying it, but it does leave you feeling uncomfy. And I don't think it's sat with me long enough for me to be able to explain if it's like, is it uncomfy just because it's an uncomfy situation or was it uncomfy because it wasn't handled in the best way? And I still don't know if I have a proper answer for that. But after that moment, she goes back and she meets with her, I like um her pimp, I guess, the guy who's yeah setting everything up. And he tries to get into a sexual situation with her too. But this is a moment that was actually appreciated because she actually took the agency of the situation, um, got out of it herself, put the hurt on this guy pretty good. And that's 
that's a moment that I felt like was handled better. Because the first one, it's her in the situation, but she's saved by the main character. She's saved by Oliver Queen. But the next one, she gets out of on her own. Which is, if you're going to include a situation like that, if it's to, like, add some power to the character, that's one of the ways that it's more forgivable, you know? Where you can get away with a bit more if it's used to benefit the female character rather than to put her down or to victimize her or to essentially, like, put any of the blame for the situation on her to get her out of that situation, I think was really good. And just where she goes after that, she doesn't get a lot in this arc. I like, um, I like her characterization a lot. She's a very strong character for all the traumatic things that she's seen at such a young age, which is very interesting because I'm not sure if it's like a strong character or just like, I feel like there'd be a little bit more. I need to read the rest of the run to see if it actually dives into that because there's got to be some leftover trauma from what she's been through. And I think the only time that's even hinted at is just when she, Oliver and Connor give this throwaway line that I didn't really like where it's like, oh, well, she's very sexually active. Well, what did you expect? She was a sex worker for a while. So do you remember that at all? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Kevin Smith's use of women in this book is not my favorite thing mm-hmm. in the world. It's interesting because, I mean, I weirdly know a lot about Kevin Smith. <laughs> um <laughs> But, like, he he's, like, the biggest wife guy in the world. And, like, he thinks his daughter hung the moon in, like, a very cute and sweet yeah. way. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it's – I don't think it's a coincidence that, like, he gives uh, Ollie a daughter and he immediately brings Dinah right back in. Like, yep. Ollie's going to be a wife guy that has a daughter because, like, those are the most important things in my life. And I think that sentiment is sweet. And I think both of those women get – some good moments. Yeah. But I can't escape the fact that every single female character, except one who was fridged (laughs) is introduced with sex, be it sexual assault, be it attempted sexual assault, or in Dinah's case, consensual, but sex. Mm -hmm. And like, it just, for me, it demonstrates so clearly like women equal sex in Kevin Smith's mind, be it positive or negative. You know, the most horrifying thing you can think of is someone making sex violent, but the most like joyous moments of the book is when sex isn't violent. But like at the end of the day, women's whole role in this story Mm -hmm. is sex. And that's, that's icky. I don't like that. I don't, I don't want that to be the case. The story did not pass the Bechdel test. No. There's um, it's interesting because you brought that up. I'm like, well, wasn't Wonder Woman? I'm like, oh wait, no, she kissed him. <laughs> she, mm-hmm. As soon as she saw Ollie, she kissed him. I'm like, wait, no, you're right. There is no woman in here who doesn't have a sexual aspect to her in some way, which you know isn't necessarily a bad thing. But when it's, it's, I I definitely when you say fridged, I want to know because I actually, <laughs> which female character was fridged? The woman who was hanging up dead in her shower yep, for okay. her husband to come home and find. That. There was that one vigilante, though, who was also kind of fridged, but she wasn't, she was the only female character in the story who wasn't sexualized, but that's because she was only here for like a page before she got shot. The, yeah. The first one that Automata mm-hmm. Pia mm-hmm. killed. She went out hard. That was, she got shot in mid-jump and fell on the, like, the fire escape. That was, I was cringing. That hurt. Yeah, it just... I don't know. Again, it it speaks to an era of comics, stories, art, whatever. Mm-hmm. Before we started calling shit like this out, 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because like, I I don't. Maybe I'm being too nice, but like, I don't think Kevin Smith writes this story this way now. No, I think he's no. someone who's educated enough to be like, oh yeah, er, nope, not gonna do that again. Mm-hmm. But like, I think. I feel like if we went back and looked at reviews of this book at the time, it would have been thumbs up. Like there's so many women in this run. This is so great. It's like, wow, a bunch of boys like patting each other on the back for how they include women in their stories. Yeah. Because there's cool moments. Like when um, Mia's training, she's like trying to train herself to be a new speedy. Cause she wants to go out and help Oliver, but we do get the implications that she's doing a lot of this because she actually has a sexual attraction to Oliver. And that that's a relationship that she like, whether she wants to act on or not, that's something that we're told almost instantly from the moment that he says her is something that's prominent in her mind, which does make that relationship a little bit, a little uncomfortable. It's weird because without that, Mia's a great character. Mm-hmm. Mia could be a lot more. And I, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't think that arc carries through this entire run. I don't think it gets remembered a lot after this, which is good. And Dinah's a great character, too. There's ways that Kevin Smith writes her that I really like. I like a lot of her dialogue. I like some of the interactions between her and Ollie. Whenever her and Ollie are talking together or kicking ass together, it's really, really great. And um, if anyone, hers is the most forgivable in here to me because, like, they, you know, they're a couple. They're going to, mm-hmm. you know, do the do. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, like, it's hers is po- largely positive. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It just contributes yeah. to a larger trend. That yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Because it's, yeah. if Give these characters an agency beyond just who they want to sleep with. Because the male characters do have that too. Like for our, the first arc, that's never a part of Connor's character. That's never really a part of Ollie's character. It's just, it shows up later. Mm-hmm. What was that? It's interesting because like, I, I like sex positive things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I... I'm not a prude. <laughs> I my one of my favorite bits about Saga is the sex life between Alana and Marco. I'm very excited to read Sunstone, which I know you love. Oh yeah. I mm-hmm. I I like the moments between Ollie and Dinah. I think they're sweet. I like that Dinah just goes out to kick ass in the nude. I thought that was really charming <laughs> in a way that like me and my wife always laugh at movies because like the dude will still be naked, but the girl will somehow have like put on a bra and a shirt after sex right. every time. It's like, well, that's never happened in the history of mankind. <laughs> and so like, I, I weirdly really liked the like, yeah, mm-hmm. she, she was naked. And so she like ran out to go fight bad guys naked. And like, it didn't seem gross to me. It no. just was like, Oh, this guy lives with a woman. Okay. Yeah, yep. that makes sense. I do. <laughs> the tea spears bit was a little. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, is that really covering anything? Are they really? And it's like. <laughs> just, just, I, did, I did like the Oliver Queen joke after that. I was like, yeah. you, you got some balls on you. And then just the moment of silence and then get it. I Any comic that sells humor that way where they actually intentionally put in that one panel of just silence for that beat is just. Oh, it's so perfect. I love it when they do that. It's, it's Phil. Phil Hester killed it in this book. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. the colorist not so much. Oh, the colorist see, dropped the ball. See, I, I actually kind of liked the colors. Or did you read digital or did you? Oh, I meant specifically for Connor. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-mm. No, no. Because yeah. I, I think it took me a while to realize, like, reading other books that that Connor Hawk I was reading was the same one from this story. Because, yeah, this Connor Hawk is purely whitewashed. 
Mm-hmm. Like, it's not even, like, an arguably different shade. He's literally the same shade as Oliver Queen. Yes. Yeah, I want to clarify. I was talking, because I was about to make a point. I didn't like Phil Hester's artwork in the JLA omnibus, mm-hmm. but it's because they put modern colors on it, and it oh, looked it looked okay. horrible. Mm-hmm. And so when you said colors, I immediately went to, like, oh, I was about to, like, compliment having original colors on his line work <laughs> and then you were like connor hawk i was like yes yeah that okay. was that was no good <laughs> that's a good clarification <laughs> that was no yeah so i agree 100 percent with you that i was like because i met connor hawk in robin by joshua williams okay oh no well that's not true i see exactly i met him in jla and i was there like oh that's that's green arrow and then i met connor again in robin by joshua williams and i was like what a cool dynamic character and i didn't realize they were the same <laughs> Because what you just said, the coloring was so whitewashy. There's not, before I move on, I want to go back to the point we were making about women. I want to make the point that it's not intentionally harmful. It's not something that like Kevin Smith was doing like, because it's like, oh, I hate women. I think like, I I pulled up a tweet of his yesterday where he's like, by the way, if you like my writing, you like women. Stop being gross and misogynist about it. I don't think anything he put here was just intentionally bad. I think it's just accidental things that he wasn't aware of and how their effect we since we're at the time we are now we're at the place we are now and we can look back at it with these eyes and say like well this is how female characters are treated now and i think this is more of what we should have been aiming for it's easy to hold them up to that standard now but back then i don't think it was anything malicious or intentional you know i agree i it doesn't it doesn't come across mean like yeah i know I, i dunk on lock and key a lot but like lock and key felt mean and like yeah. this book doesn't feel mean. Exactly. This book feels uninformed. Kind of like when your dad makes a joke that you're like, Dad, yeah. that's a little bit. <laughs> There's a few of the those to- here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's like the tone of this book a little bit sometimes where you're like, ah, Dad, I I know you're a good person. I know. <laughs> Why are you saying this shit? Exactly. Like, <laughs> we're, we're, we're privileged in the way we can actually look back at it with the perspective that we have and critique it from our you know our stay our stance now but that's just all i want to say on that i don't want anyone to think we yeah. were dissing on kevin smith for being like a woman hater or something like that no i i think kevin smith's a great person yeah i do too um i, I also care. i think oh. this is a great comic also yeah. i i feel like <laughs> we've talked about so many things and you and i both being comic nerds have wanted to talk about early 2000s comics through yeah, this book so for anyone that like is a huge fan of this book I really liked this book. Yeah. I really thought it was fun. And I think more people should read this book. <laughs> There's a reason I always recommend this book. And it's just because this is the version of Oliver Queen that speaks to my heart. This is the version I read with Alan Tudyk's voice in the back of my head. And just like, it makes me smile because he's such a lovable goofball who just wants to do the right thing, but always puts his foot in his mouth and relatable, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Before we move, I wanted to talk a little bit about like um, the two villains in this. First, Stanley and his um his monster. What did you think about the villain for the first arc in Quiver? It was my least interesting part. Of I think Quiver. so too. You know, I was like, you could have just not had this. You know, I <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I I think we had enough going on with Quiver to not also mm-hmm. need satanic grandpa. <laughs> It's murdering kids because like on one point i get it's like you didn't need the satanic grandpa part but i understand the motive 
the motivation behind it. And I also understand like you need an antagonistic force to get Oliver's soul out of heaven and to get him to like, okay, I need to come back down. I need to take care of my issues. But it also makes me want, do you think they could have accomplished that without an outside antagonistic force? Do you think just like Oliver's own persuasion could have been enough to get his own soul back or I think the the character drama is what's mm-hmm. the most interesting. So I almost wish that like our Oliver missed Dinah enough. You know what I mean? Like play up Dinah right. more to where like okay, he has to come back down because he says this later in the run. He says like you were the only thing I missed while I was in heaven. You are the reason I came back here. And I think that could have been a really powerful moment for that to be the draw back to Earth mm-hmm. is like maybe seeing the the quiver like with this family and Oliver realizing like, oh, I want that so bad. Like mm-hmm. uh, being on earth with my family is better than being in heaven alone, yucking it up with Gandhi and Barry Allen. Still the funniest thing that's ever <laughs> happened. But, you know, I, I feel like maybe I'm just a sweetheart with mm-hmm. <laughs> the wants everyone to just be in love and happy all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. But, I think that would have been a little more tonally consistent than also the subplot about Satan grandpa. I feel it too. And that's, it does feel very Kevin Smithy, but also at the same time, it also feels very comic booky. Like them looking at this and saying, look, we need a bad guy. This needs to have a comic book showdown. You need to, we're going to throw Etrigan in here just for, just for shits and giggles, which, you know, Kevin Smith had a blast writing Etrigan. Anyone who's ever written Etrigan just, Every time they have to, I bet they just write it with, like, the biggest smile on their face. Because, like, I get to play poet for two seconds. Let's fucking go. I get to play poet with a demon for two seconds. That has to be the greatest thing. He is one of my favorite DC characters. <laughs> He's so cool. And um, it's interesting how they use Stanley in this. Because Stanley and his monster is actually a pretty old DC property. Going back to, like, the 50s. And you look at it and it's like, did you ever watch the show Maggie and like the Great Beast or anything like that? I think that's what it was called. It's um very, looking back at the old picture, it's something that's definitely like targeted specifically at kids. The Beast looks very, very cartoony. Um, it has a big like, not Archie feel. It has like a Sunday strip feel to it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then to see how it's used in this where he's literally feeding his own grandson human blood and calling him his monster and the monster and actually ends up eating stanley that's like that's the 2000s reimaginings of a lot of things that i like that's that's on point there we go we couldn't change ollie too much so we're going to change this character a lot Mm -hmm. and i thought that was funny that was really funny i i really liked as well watching ollie bounce around the dc universe and Mm -hmm. see him interact with aquaman with hawkman with the jsa Mm -hmm. with the jla and almost like letting him be the test for how much they've all changed by bringing him back to the silver age ideal yeah you can see how the modern grit had rubbed into everybody yep but in a really charming and fun way in like a way that it almost felt like Kevin Smith was like lovingly nodding at the progress. Yeah. It wasn't like a, it wasn't a, a dig, you know, it's not yeah. like, um, I thought it was such a smart move to be, to have Aquaman be the character he gets introduced to first. Cause he's the one of the original ones that he would have recognized who has definitely changed the most since the last time he saw him. And just the moment where they're sitting together and they're like arguing and they just both look at each other and they both say at the same time, what the hell happened to you anyway <laughs> is, forever one of my absolute favorite interactions in comics just because it 
it sets up so much perfectly for this entire run. Just someone who's at a time trying to come to terms with things that have happened in the modern era that have changed a lot. Like he changed a lot as a person himself. And, you know, he has to embrace that towards the end of the story. And I think getting him exposed to how much things have changed that early on sets that up really well. I agree 100%. I, I love how you understand comics. I like listening to you talk about them. <laughs> Do I understand? Good, because sometimes I feel like I'm just rambling. <laughs> no, I like it a lot. Sometimes I forget that I'm part of the podcast. I'm like, keep going. Go on. Go go off. Wow. <laughs> that's why i stopped so i'm like okay that's that's why i gotta say now you cover so people don't know that's all i have to talk about <laughs> um what did you think of phil hester's line work because he's a he's someone i used to not like because mm-hmm. of that jla book and then reading this i realized it was the colors in that jla book it's, i didn't like phil hester's line work is iconic to me specifically because of this arc like i've read phil hester's work in other places but none of them stand out to me as much as this i think he's the perfect artist for ollie and i know it's gonna sound crazy but i think it's because he draws the goatee so well just he his draws style perfect right it's like so perfectly pointy and it's just like <laughs> i'm like this is the ideal this is the perfect oliver queen i never want anyone else to draw him ever again you want to have your mind blown yes uh, when you look at ryan ollie's earliest line work like there's the panel of Superman and Batman sharing the two small bed. That's yeah. that's Ryan Ollie. That is so Phil Hester. Yes, it he is. Is so clearly like one of the biggest influences on Ryan Ollie is Phil Hester. So like anyone, I feel like Phil Hester kind of gets a bad rap nowadays. People look and they're like, I don't really like this. Like if you like Ryan Ollie, you like Phil Hester. It's like it's it's a cool art style. It's stylized in the way it's very like blocky, very. It feels Go. very um, Manet because influences Monet, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, like I love Monet. I think Monet is one of the greatest artists of all time. But like, we don't have Monet without Manet in mm-hmm. venting impressionism. You know what I mean? And right. so, weirdly, we don't have a lot of the really dynamic comic art that we have today without Phil Hester, even if. I tend to like Ryan Otley more than I like Phil Hester. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's it's interesting. Cause I think Ryan Otley's evolved that original base style into his own since oh, for then. Sure. For sure. But Phil Hes- Phil Hester's been doing the same thing since the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. Which is why I picked up the um the first um Superman action comics of the Infinite Frontier um era because they had Phil Hester in them. And I'm like, this art isn't landing with me the same way it used to, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I I agree. I agree. I there are a lot of mo- old comic guys that don't age well into digital inking, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like I, I think yeah. I think ninety eight percent of the complaints people have about John Romita Jr. are actually digital inking. I feel it. Mm-hmm. Like it's he's his line work still impeccable. <laughs> yeah, it's and it's the same line work it was before. Mm-hmm. It's not like he's gotten worse over time. Because like you go back and no one's complaining about his stuff from like Daredevil, you know that because it's solid and it has a coloring that matches it has an inking that matches but today it's just like so sharp it that it stands out how different it is if that makes sense yeah there's there's a subtlety to the line you have to have with modern uh modern colors that you didn't have back then because your lines were the main character it almost feels like lines lines are now a part of a larger whole whereas Mm -hmm. that used to kind of be the draw 
And so I think some of the artists like Phil Hester, like John Romita Jr., when they're paired up with a modern colorist and a modern inker, it doesn't gel quite as well because their lines seem too bold and blocky for the more subtle colors. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's Dallas's art Thank corner. You. There's there there's Dallas's Thank color you. corner. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're here because... <laughs> I definitely, no one tell my um, high school English teacher, I've definitely forgotten a lot of the differences between Manet and Monet, so it's fine. I like it. I only know because I'm a sucker for Impressionism. Ask me anything about Renaissance art, I'm like, it's all bad except for Leonardo, and Michelangelo has cool marble, but his paintings are kind of boring. And you're like, you uncultured uh, swine. Okay. <laughs> The last thing I want to get into before we get into the questions for this episode, just because he's the one chunk that we haven't really talked about yet. What did you think about Onomatopoeia and the Sounds of Silence arc? He was very cool. He felt very Morrisonian to me. I feel really? like he, I feel like he walked out of the Invisibles or Doom Patrol. Okay. You know, I was like, <laughs> I who has only read Morrison comics. I'm getting a lot of Morrison notes from this. You don't call me out like that. Don't, <laughs> don't do that to me. I, I really think it was that first cover of him on there. I was like, this looks like an Invisibles cover. Right. But I thought he was great. I thought he was fun. Was this his first appearance? Yes, it was. It's oh. his first and one of his only appearances. He hasn't been used a lot since. He's kind of a baddie. I'm not going to lie. Like, yeah. you could really do some cool stuff with him. He's one of the characters who's just, like, so unnerving and so so fittingly terrifying on the page even though he has no powers it's just the fact you don't know anything about him you don't know why he's doing what he's doing you don't know why he only speaks in automatopoeia besides just the fact that that's his gag it's a character that's steeped in mystery in a mystery that the joker hasn't been steeped in for decades that used to make him so interesting you know he has a he has a big michael myers in the first halloween energy Whereas Joker now has Michael Myers on Halloween number 12 energy. <laughs> Where it's like, we no, know too no, he, much. We know too much. No, the Joker doesn't have Michael Myers energy anymore. He's on to Robert Englund in the later Nightmare on Elm Street movies now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Joker right now is the same one that would use the, the power gauntlet or whatever. <laughs> have you seen the Nightmare on Elm Street movie? Like the last ones? I, I haven't. I They're haven't seen them. fucking insane. <laughs> <laughs> oh there because there was one of the kills where he pulls up like an atari power glove or something like that it was one of the old video game controllers from the 90s to kill someone in their dreams and it's the i'm gonna send you the clip after this show's done it's the cheesiest thing that's ever happened the best uh, thing that ever happened in the nightmare on elm street movies was for them to become comedies <laughs> <laughs> i like that i like that oh uh, now i want to watch horror movies it's not oh. halloween yet i'm not allowed to <laughs> You got you got eight months to go. When's Halloween? When's the nine months? Nine ten? months. I late. don't know time. Time is a lake and has no meaning. Okay. Um, Green Arrow. Do we want to do listener questions now? Do we have anything else? Yes, we can. That the we only thing say? I'm very glad that Onomatopoeia did not kill Connor. I'm Same. very I'm sad that him getting shot in the literal head is the least bad thing that's happened to him in the last 20 years but i am also glad that he survived because it yeah i feel like a lot of this is just me hyping up the next arc that i'm very excited to to talk about lexi has to be with us for that one because if it's going to emotionally devastate us it has to emotionally devastate her as well so like that's that's my that's my goal here it's just unanimous emotional devastation 
I like it. I think this is one of the best character pieces in comics we've read in a long time for the show. Yeah. I think that Kevin Smith understands and loves Oliver Queen and Dinah Lance and Connor Hawk. I think all of them are treated pretty well and given a light that makes you want to go and explore more of their comics. And that's that's perfect as a jumping on right. point. I think I think you should check this out. If you listen to this yeah. and you liked any of this conversation, if you want to know more about Green Arrow, read this book. It's great. If you met Green Arrow in Deceased and liked him, that's this Green Arrow. If you met him yeah. in Injustice, that's this Green Arrow. If you met him in Arrow, like me, this is not. I'm that sorry, Green Arrow. that's not this Green Arrow. <laughs> but this is better. Read this. <laughs> this is the Green Arrow that everyone complains about <laughs> in the Arrow comment section is talking about. If you have ever been like, I wish Batman <laughs> could tell a joke and have sex, read this comic. Because Green Arrow is that. Batman Green doesn't Arrow get to do that. that. <laughs> He's Green Batman. The green makes him better. He's Yeah, exactly. He's Batman who didn't lose his parents in a tragedy. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Maybe, did he? Did he? Yeah. Yeah, his parents are gone. Green Arrow lost his parents in a tragedy? I know in some versions of the story, at least his dad dies on that boating trip, too, when he gets stuck on the island. I need it, to read the Jeff Lemire Green Arrow again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, need to. I need to read um, Green Arrow Year One, because I've heard really good things about that. Ah, Batgirl Year One. The best year <laughs> one. Are you thinking about? See, here's the... Th- like. You can make fun of people for reading cape shit all the time. Like, I'm the biggest cape shit apologist. It's, like, my favorite thing to read in comics. And it's, like, I know the better stories are in indies, but I really, really read cape shit for the characters. Like, there's – you read cape shit because you love these characters so much. And they're vivid histories. They're vivid relationships. And this is, this is like, the epitome of that. This is one of the reasons, like, why I never give cape shit up because whenever a story comes along like this – it makes me smile, it makes my heart warm, and it makes me fall in love with characters all over again. So. I agree. Uh, to plug comic book couples counseling again, something they said uh, about YA graphic novels mm-hmm. on their Best of the Year show. They said, YA graphic novels are our favorite right now because they're the ones that always have a lesson about humanity. There's always a mm-hmm. point to the story. And I actually think Cape Shit does that too. I think that's what's so magical yeah. about Cape Shit is like, I read Criminal by Ed Brubaker. It's fascinating. I love it. I don't walk away with like a lesson about how to be a better person. But when I read Daniel Warren Johnson's short from Superman Red and Blue this last Mm -hmm. year, I walk away openly weeping, wanting to tell the people in my life that I love them more and understanding that they love me. You know what I mean? And that's, Mm -hmm. that's magic. That's, it's, not to get all Grant Morrison-y, but like it's almost religious. You know, people turn to, they find, people find a way to feel important and loved and to learn how to be a good person. And I think superhero comics can be that for a lot of people. And I think Green Arrow by Kevin Smith is one that teaches you about how important family is. That family is more important than even like your idea of heaven, which is a lesson that I think some people could learn. That like, if your idea of heaven excludes members of your family it's not a very good heaven mm-hmm. you know what i mean yep. and like that's a lesson i took away from a green arrow comic book mm-hmm. it's like superheroes rule <laughs> and family is worth embracing the mistakes you've made before to be yeah. a better person for them yeah like yeah. mend that bridge i feel like more than maybe i'm just just personally but like 
the pandemic era, the election year, everything really put a strain on my familial relationships. Mm-hmm. And it was, it has been so worth it to be a bigger person and ask them to be bigger people and come together again, you know, and to find reasons to love, own up to times that I was a dick, ask them to own up to times that they were a dick. And if that's something that a Green Arrow comic book can give to you, I think that's pretty special. I agree. (sighs) Well, with that out of the way, I feel like it is time to get into some of these listener questions and give them something resembling an answer. So we got some good ones. Yeah, we did. And we got some from some new people too, which is really, really exciting. That is exciting. We love our classics, but if you listen to the show and like it, write in. It makes our day. Yeah. It makes it seem like we're not shouting into the void. (laughs) (laughs) Which most of this episode has been (laughs) rambling to the void. But I hope you all liked it. I I liked it. I liked it. I liked it. (laughs) Lexi will be back next week and we'll be back on track. It'll be fine. (laughs) Exactly. For anyone that's like, uh, what? Alexis doesn't know as much about comics. She's the one that makes this a podcast. Mm-hmm. When she's not here, Anne and I are like, would you like to talk about the ins and outs of August 2002 of comic books? <laughs> like, that's not good radio. That's just nerds. I <laughs> I love Lexi so much. I love having the perspective of someone who's so new to this because it's just like unburdened with a lot of veteran baggage. And I like seeing it when like she lights up at stories that she likes because I remember what that was like to read these for the first time. I also feel like, yeah, she she doesn't apologize for bad comics, if right. that makes sense. Yeah. Like just because a good creator is attached to a bad comic, Alexis isn't gonna be pretend like it's good, like I catch myself doing. I pretend to be like, Well, this is highly regarded, so clearly it's good even if I hated it. And Alexis will just be like, The killing joke is bad. <laughs> And she was right. And she's right. She's right most of the time. Uh, Okay. So our first question is from Josh from Bandwagon Fan Podcast. And he writes in, my comic knowledge is limited. Got back into comics as an adult during the pandemic. So there were so many questions while reading Kevin Smith's Green Arrow. I only got through the first few issues, but here we go. First, how do you think Roy's addiction has been handled in more recent stories? I think it's great when comics dig into deeper issues, but a lot of times they miss opportunities to start a nuanced conversation. Secondly, thoughts on how Mia's situation was portrayed. Abuse of minors is a real issue and one that many people are unaware of. However, it still felt like she was being sexualized through the art, which I feel takes away from the survivors. And third, Am I the only one who feels like Oliver's personality is inconsistent amongst creators? Sometimes he's dark and brooding, sometimes he's comic relief, and sometimes he's the heart of the story. All really good questions, frankly. Uh, I feel like the first two kind of go together about how heavy topics are addressed in superhero comics. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I I don't know enough about Roy Harper in recent comics. Mm Mm-hmm. That's about where I am. I've read a few comics featuring him, like Titans, you know, I've read through that recently. It's a situation where it's like Jon Stewart blowing up Zanchi, where it's a traumatic event from long ago in their past that keeps, it feels like whenever I read Roy, it keeps getting brought up as like, play those greatest hits over and over again. And I feel like it's something that's been addressed before, but writers still keep trying to address it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, I'm ready for Roy to move past that. I think for the most part he has, but it's one of those things where it's like, I feel like I've read it 
plenty of times before. I think it comes up in um, Red Hood and the Outsiders a few times. Uh, not the Outsiders. Red Hood and the Outlaws. Sorry. During that New 52 run. But to be fair, I might just be imagining that because I think I've scrubbed most of that run from my mind. <laughs> it's it's a compelling issue because like, as someone who deals with like addiction myself and then like addiction in my family, it's something that never goes away. Mm-hmm. But it's also... It's not your whole life. You know what I mean? So it's like this hard balance to strike where right. I think it's actually something that Kelly Sue DeConnick does perfectly in all of her comics. Um, she being someone who is a recovered, is an alcoholic in remission. Mm-hmm. And like, I think she, I would love to see her write a character like Roy Harper, you know, but I don't know. I, I know that first issue is iconic. I know it changed comics forever when Roy gets caught using speed mm-hmm. and it's i don't want comics to stop taking right. on hard topics mm-hmm. but also it is a very fraught thing to do right that should be addressed should be critiqued so that we can all try and walk away better from it absolutely uh, and i think sort of the same thing with mia's sexualization like child trafficking mm-hmm. child sex trafficking is a real thing and it's a terrifying yeah. thing. It's an ugly thing. And if we don't acknowledge that it's real, then it's just going to keep happening. Mm-hmm. But like, also, you couldn't pay me enough money in the world to be the person that tries to portray that complex issue well. Right. It's it's so hard to do. And it's I was um reading a little bit of this um book, Love, Sex, Gender, and Superheroes by Jeffrey A. Brown, which has been absolutely fantastic. And I keep talking about it because it's absolutely fantastic. And one of the chapters in there talks about how topics like sexual assault are very hard to talk about in comics because they've been so traditionally this medium where female characters are so often sexualized and used to um, for, for that specific purpose. So there's a quote in here by um, Valerie Steele-Frankel where it says, too often... Assault is used to titillate, and too rarely are the effects of trauma shown. And I think that's something very interesting, because that quote actually comes up in reference to another Smith story that this book talks about, which is the Spider-Man Black Cat miniseries that he did, in which various scenes of sexual assault are shown against Black Cat. And they go in to describe how, like, the story can say one thing, but the art can be trying to tell you a different story at the same time, where it's like, the story can be saying, like, this this event was awful. It was traumatic. It shaped who she is as a person and she still has issues from it. But the art over-sexualizing her, making this curvy, um, vivacious figure goes against that because it's meaning for the reader to view her as that sexual object rather than a person herself, which is often used in like cases of sexual assault as like, you know, like victim blaming, like, oh, she, did you see how she was dressed? She's clearly not a person. She's an object, you know? So it's, a very fine line to walk and I feel like it's weird because I feel like comics are at a better place now to address it than they were in the 2000s because I brought this up the other day it's like the 2000s were very much a cheesecake era where the 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 modus operandi for both DC and Marvel at the time was kind of like hey let's let's push TNA a little bit let's um let's get you know some sex cells so let's go for it but also at the same time they're trying to tackle these larger subjects that they never really tried to tackle before and them happening congruously is probably why they didn't work as well for me you know i agree 100 um i 
I think a huge strength of modern comics is the amount of diverse voices that yeah. are have been brought in. And just the fact that like a woman is never going to draw a sexual assault scene in the same way that like a man would. And I would argue almost every single time it will be better, <laughs> you know, because yeah. there are emotions tied up in that. that you, you don't want to draw that you don't, that dissonance doesn't exist as much. I think, some of the one of the really big strengths of a book like Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow has been that Bill Quist Evely is the artist yeah. of this book where like a female character is going through it, but like the art always sells her as strong, sells her as vulnerable, sells her as more human than I think some mm -hmm. maybe even bigger names of male artists would have been able to sell. There was another quote in this book where it talks about how superhumans are portrayed as enhanced versions of their own specific gender like stereotypical traits like whenever there's a male hero he's portrayed as taller more muscular broader and like that strength is um amplified whereas a female superhero things like her like curves are um accentuated and like her figure and stuff like that that's the forefront rather than like muscles or strength or anything like that it's her sexiness that gets elevated rather than her own individual like power that's and i super think that's interesting yeah and that's something where it's like um talking about bill quiz i um evely and how she portrays kara in the supergirl run she's portrayed as a character who is strong as hell and she gets into very um dynamic moments of action and just um pure raw force and that's something you don't see from female characters a lot and yeah it's that's another thing i could rant about for hours because it's something that until you think about it, until you start talking about it you don't notice as much but then once you realize like you talk about feats of like superman lifting buildings and like stopping like planets and stuff like that and you're like okay well think about a female superhero with about his same weight class when was the last time they did something like that when was the last time supergirl batted someone with a freight ship you know it doesn't happen as often yeah, I think um, a big part of my January 2022 has been a Wonder Woman deep dive. Mm -hmm. And there have been a lot of times that I've been like, why isn't she cooler? Why? She is, <laughs> when she's written well by people that love her, there isn't a better hero in, in I, DC Comics for me, for my money. Easily, easily my favorite DC superhero. Doesn't get as many good stories as half the boys. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I can't wait for our Earth One discussion. That's going to get so great. Did I show you what I got? I got, um, in preparation, I got the Secret History of Wonder Woman by Jill Lamore. Oh. We're going to have some fun. And I also have my. Maybe I'll read Wonder that Woman. too. Yeah, that'd be so cool. Can we trick Lexi into reading an actual book? No. Oh. <laughs> Something you cannot read the morning of exactly oh. exactly sorry about that josh if we got a little off topic um the last point yes you're not the only one oliver's personality does tend to change from run to run it's different in the denny o'neill run than it is in the grell longbow hunters it's different there than it is here and it changes again in the new 52 they they try different things i think that's something that happens with a lot of dc characters yeah where I, that's sort of what Grant Morrison plays with in their super and in their Batman run is that Batman has been a thousand different people 
and that's an aspect of the character. I think Green Arrow is sort of a similar way. And I think this book addresses that pretty head on, especially the further you get into the story. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So cool. Thank you for writing in, Josh. Yeah. All right. So we have an email from Ollie. Hey, it's Ollie uh, at The Quiver on Twitter. Uh, Hope you found the book great. It's a personal favorite of mine. After reading it, did it change any preconceived notions you had on on Green Arrow? Did it elevate the character for you? And does it make you want to read more of the character? Love the podcast and hope you're all well. Yeah, yeah, it makes me want to read more. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of the ones where it's like, it definitely hit different for me because this was the Green Arrow I met first. So it Mm -hmm. didn't change any preconceived notions. It's like, yeah, this seems like the character I know. Um, Because I'm pretty sure I started Arrow after after I met this character. So I think if anything, Arrow was the one that was like the hard one to get used to. Cause I wanted something so much different. Cause I'm like, I like the one in the comics. Why can't you be more like that one? And then the show producers are like, Oh, he'll get there eventually. And then he, he never gets there. So it's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. And it, it definitely made me want to read more green arrow. This is the one that made him a favorite. This is whenever I think of like, someone asked me like what are your favorite dc characters i think green arrow i go straight here so i it really has made me eyeball i've got the jed winnick green arrow black canary with cliff chang over on my shelf and i've been eyeballing it this whole conversation i've been like (laughs) you and i are gonna we're gonna open up together sooner than later (laughs) i'm looking forward to it uh yeah this was great i really think Kind of like Anne said, I think I knew Green Arrow. I think I met Green Arrow in Injustice, frankly, like the real Green Arrow. And then yeah. he's all over Tom Taylor's work. And I'm I'm a noted Tom Taylor fan. So this just kind of felt like, oh, this is a really good version of the character I like, where he's not just the background character. So, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for thanks. the question, Ollie. Okay, the next one comes in from Mullet Overlord. Um, I love that. Hello, Comics Collective. New fan of the show here. Hopped on immediately after hearing Anne guest on Doc DC, which led me to an over-budget purchase of Aquabooks. Good. I am a menace, and I'm so glad. And I am thrilled to hear you guys talk about one of my all-time favorite characters. My question is, how well do you think Ollie works as comics depiction of white guilt liberalism? Whereas he is always trying to be as progressive as possible, but keeps fumbling on personal levels on certain issues. Thanks for the great podcast, Mollet Overlord. I mean, as a white guilt liberal, uh, <laughs> I feel seen by this comic. Mm-hmm. If you ever wanted to see me stumble over my white guilt liberalism, go check out What's Next, a comic book podcast. It's the show where I endlessly put my foot in my mouth. Oh, Oh, it's fantastic. It's such a great podcast. Thank you very much. Um, what do you think of this question, Anne? What do you think of Ollie as a, a bad liberal? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's interesting because that's, like I said at the beginning, that's one of the things that Kevin Smith said he wanted to address in this run. And I think it gets there eventually. I think there's moments in this one where it's like him conf- being confronted with himself, where it's like the quote-unquote modern ideas of liberalism that the the oliver soul has are still even by today's definitions like outdated like the fact that heaven ollie doesn't think the cops are blue fascists is funny because i'm like it's just a circle let's come back around Mm -hmm. it's come all the way back around and i think it's 
definitely there's the that version of himself telling him basically like hey you can chill a little bit it's not as bad you can still be a liberal without feeling like you need to go so far out of your way to like get there whether or not that's the the appropriate message or not that's the one i was kind of getting from that so it's it's interesting but i feel like that message gets lost under a lot of the other things just oliver's own personal journey the random demon stuff i it's just one of the themes that gets lost in the white noise i think i agree um any analysis of liberalism is really interesting to me because like i think the strength of the conservative party is that they all unite behind the same bullshit you know what i mean like it doesn't matter who you are what you're doing if you're a conservative you are on the same team and i feel like the exact opposite is true for liberals (laughs) like no one is quite the right amount of liberal for anybody else Hmm. you're either a crazy leftist with ideas that'll never work or you're a neoliberal fascist or you're not you're not doing enough you know what i mean and so you're gasp a moderate (gasps) um you know i i catch myself doing it all the time where i am the perfect ideal of liberalism which is a fucking joke you know (laughs) um but i think ollie is an interesting litmus test there though because no one is quite good enough for ollie either and so i weirdly think he's the perfect liberal (laughs) in that way um and he's a really fun litmus test for the reader to see how you feel about his particular brand of liberalism right but that's my two cents on the two-party system of america oh politics this is too early it's too early in the morning but thank you for the question Mm -hmm. all right so from Dan, we have Happy New Year. I hope you're all doing well. As of today, I'm still stocking up on episodes, but I decided to go ahead and write a question for this upcoming one. So here it is. Thanks for binging old episodes, you old scamp. Um, Given Black Canary's treatment in recent DC books, how do you feel this one treats the character? I know one of you has been very vocal about how Canary's been handled in one book in particular. So I was wondering if this was any better. Wish you guys the best, Dan. Uh, I was disappointed there weren't more fishnets in this book. Uh, I think one of the most important attributes of Black Canary is fishnets with biker boots. And the bare legs just weren't weren't good enough. So that's putting my foot down. That is my... It's... Yeah. Thank you for that. that was, You're welcome. That was You're welcome. Um, yeah. Black Canary in this book, it's... It's hard for me to say because it's such a small sample size of this whole run. And I'm thinking like, I, I actually caught myself a couple times thinking like, she's really into Ollie here. But this is at the same time that Gail Simone's Birds of Prey run is going on. And Ollie barely gets a mention over there, which is like the funniest thing to me. Because it's like, she is so focused on him here because he'd just come back. I would love to, getting back into this run, I want to see how she plays a role later. Because at the beginning, you can kind of justify a character being like very crazy about their their lover because he's literally just back from the dead, you know? So I just, it's, I didn't hate it. I think their conversations are great. But knowing the fact that she was actually in another book at the time where she's just kind of kicking ass and doing her own thing beyond him makes this a little bit more palatable to me. But that, that's with that context in mind. I've never read Gail Spawn Birds of Prey. 
we should we should read that for the show. That I know. I put it on yeah. my list the other day and put a little fire mark by it. So. I need to put the fire mark next to it too. Okay. Uh, we'll read it soonish. Well, I say that I've scheduled us to June, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> listeners, I am a menace. I've scheduled us to June. I hate myself, but also we've got a really solid first half of the year here. Oh my god. Yeah, I'm looking. I kept looking through some of the things you were suggesting. I'm like, oh my god, thank you. Yes, <laughs> awesome. What can I say? What can I say? You what can good. I say? We do. We do good work here. Um, I really like Black Canary in the little bits of her that I have met. I would love to read Birds of Prey because I want more of her. That's that's the run that will make you fall in love with her and be like, yeah, she deserves more than to just be the add on to X male title. <laughs> I, Which yeah. I'm not going to talk about here. Yeah, we don't need to give waves to books we hate. <laughs> right, right. Anyways, thank you for that, Dan. Next one comes from our favorite, Glenn Machette. Um, hello, Katniss and Legolas. Damn, how you doing, Legolas? Me, Katniss, over here. <laughs> Vibin'. Um... <laughs> Glenn has asked two questions. One, if Smith wanted to come back to Green Arrow, do you think it would be as good? And two, are you guys going to do Archer's Quest by Meltzer and Hester? It's a brilliant follow-up to the story. Many thanks, Glenn. So, so do you want to answer number two, Miss? I can answer number two. We're definitely coming back to do that one eventually. If I might go ahead and schedule it for June before those spaces are taken up. Do it. Do it. So that's a that's a yes. All right, Glenn, you ju- you changed our schedule live on the air. Good for Glenn. The power this man holds. <laughs> Didn't change it, just solidified it. I'd like it. Um, would Kevin Smith be good to bring back to Green Arrow? Kevin Smith is interesting because he was definitely like a celebrity writing comic books when he was writing comic books. He was very famous for his movies and famous for being a nerd. And so it was like... It was a big deal. BFD when he came to write comic books. And I don't think it'd be the same now. Yeah. I think if he came and wrote comics, a couple 35-year-old white men would be like, oh my gosh, whoa! And no one else would care. I'm pretty sure. Hasn't he written a few things recently? He pretty sure he might... was in Detective 1027, wasn't he? Yeah, I think so. He like he still comes back occasionally to write one-off stories, but nothing for Ollie, I believe. I, did he come back for the anniversary issue? Uh, I don't know. My my thing I want to say about Kevin Smith is, as a Daredevil fan, I'm well aware that he doesn't finish stories. He writes like three issues, and it's like goodbye. I've given. Uh, I've, I've moved on to my next thing. I have Kevin Smith things to do. I've got to go smoke weed and go on hikes. Which, frankly, go off, King. Go yeah. go on hikes and smoke weed. You are rich enough. You don't have to do all this. But I don't really want to see him come back to comics for that reason. I I've a I have low patience for like people from outside of comics that come in and treat comics like it's this quaint little project they're doing. Like, uh, oh, I'll do an issue here and there. Like Joss Whedon taking seventy years to finish Astonishing X Men. Like Ugh. Okay, Prima Donna, like how about you don't you write more than two issues a year if if you're gonna throw a fit and steal Kitty Pride from the main X Men run, have the decency to finish your X Men book. Uh, there's um i just checked the anniversary he did not come back for the anniversary so i feel like even if he even if 
people wanted him to come back, I don't think he would because you know he was probably asked for that. Yeah. And if he doesn't have time for that one issue, I don't want to see him on anything else. I agree. I agree. I I'm on I've been on a big stand lately. I want comic books to pay people way more money so mm-hmm. that one writer and one artist can make a living making one book if that's all they want to do. This whole everybody needs to be writing 73 things at a time and optioning something for Netflix to make a living is bullshit and it's hurting comic books. Exactly. Marvel and DC, you can't afford it. You made Marvel, uh so you're making 2 billion dollars off of Spider-Man. You can pay John Romita Jr. and Zeb Wells enough money and you can take the hit to release it monthly. It's going to be okay. And, you know, if you're upset about the books not selling as well, maybe you should make them more accessible, you know? Figure out something that works besides just putting them in a few random shops around America. Just sell the books better. And maybe, I don't know, advertise with your giant billion-dollar billboards that you have in theaters every three months. It is kind of insane that the source material for chess sold better than it had in 50 years because of Queen's Gambit, and we can't sell comic books when they're the biggest movies in the world. I I do not understand. We can make chess sexy. How can we... Records are sexy. I have records on my floor because I'm a dumbass hipster right now. Like People would buy comic books if they knew they existed. The amount of people, when I tell them, oh, I do a comic book podcast, and they go, they still make those? Oh my god. Is astronomical. Astronomical. It's because they don't see them. Because unless you seek them out, you're not going to find them. Exactly. Like, even the accessible options, Marvel Unlimited, DC Infinite, which DC Infinite sucks. That six-month wait is a joke. But Marvel Unlimited, it's like, yeah, if you know that exists, that's an awesome option. But, like, has it been advertised anywhere ever? No. Mm-hmm. It's advertised to me because I already have it. Like, right. pour some money into some Google ads, Marvel Every time someone searches any of your characters, make the first result Marvel Unlimited. Exactly. It's not that hard. <sighs> Eduardo Perez Rubio writes. Thanks, Ed. Uh, hey, Comics Collective crew. Hope you're doing spectacular. The question I have is, if you were to pitch a creative team for a new hard-traveling hero series, who would it be? For me, I'd do Gene Luen Yang and Guru Hero. Sincerely, Ed. P.S. Dallas is right. Rage Voltron is dope. I'm always right. Always. Who do you want to tackle the complex politics of liberalism versus conservatism as they road trip across America? Uh, See. My vote's Donny Cates. (laughs) That was mean. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Losing my goddamn mind. (laughs) Oh, that's gonna take me. Hold up, I need a second. I need. I my vote is Tanahisi Coates would do an excellent job. Oh, um, I surprise. I love him because of his novels and work at the Atlantic. I've never read a Tanahisi Coates comic. I haven't gotten to it yet. Mm-hmm. When he's one of my favorite prose writers ever. So shout out me. Um, Black Panther is really good. I've heard that. I've heard Captain America is really good too. Just the art lacked. Which sucks. It's, Captain America's interesting to me. It's one of the books I keep reading. Like I go back eventually. I, I follow up with an issue or two. It, 
you, you know my issue with, like the Spencer run how it brought together like the web warriors like the really cool female characters just for them to be like the damsels in distress for Peter to save like three issues later this does that but correctly because <laughs> it introduces like the daughters of liberty and they're like we're actually here to help you cap and they actually do some cool shit so I'm like thank you I appreciate it <laughs> mm, I like that I yeah I I think I'll read his Black Panther run this year that awesome. sounds like a good goal for Dallas let me know what you think I will. I don't know who I want on art. Um, Patrick Gleason. I think he would draw a really great version of both those characters. That's that's actually really solid. I'm always I always feel bad when these questions come up because I'm so bad at creative team like assignments. I don't do fan casts. I don't do creative team pitches. I just like if I have one that vibes with me and like just out of the blue i'm like oh this would actually be really cool but i don't like spend so much time thinking about it so i actually don't have anything solid i think someone like a like a mariko tamaki would be cool um on art it's hard for me with green arrow because i really want that stylized version it's gonna sound crazy it's never gonna happen but i would love um shep and sages or shep and sage i keep forgetting how to pronounce his name but for him i love his ollie his ollie is great i would love to see his dinah and yeah that's my far out of left field never gonna happen because he can't even he unfortunately won't even come back to finish the the harleen series so which is respectable because i he's doing his own things so rip the rip the dream rip the dream he's too busy making really sexy comics with really great stories I was I just read through fine print and like if you guys love Sunstone, I'm gonna add this to the list too because this is Sunstone but with mythology. Mm, that sounds up Alexis Alley. Alexis is the biggest mythology geek ever. <laughs> love that for her. I, I I can't wait to tell her that Hades is canonically a thing in Sunstone because it takes place in the same universe. That rules. She'll the like Greek that. pantheon rules. <sighs> I have complex thoughts about the Greek pantheon because of that episode we listened to of breaking down patriarchy about what Plato had to say about women. I was like, it's so evident in everything. Yeah. Oh, by the way, great plug for a non-comics podcast. If you want to go listen to something great, breaking down patriarchy is such a great show. And yeah, it's, I could talk about that one for hours too. It, it takes a little bit to get through because it's a, a heavy show but i think it's something that everyone should listen to i agree it kind of feels like taking your medicine but in a good way mm-hmm. it's it's like a shot of you know how people drink apple cider vinegar yep <laughs> that's exactly what it is it's like burns all the way down but you're like oh, i felt better all day today and i don't really know why i think the the quote about um people who forget their history being doomed to repeat it i think this is this is where it's most applicable just understanding how so many systems came to be today but anyways that's not comics so i won't pitch that anymore dallas would you like to start wrapping up the show i do think this is our longest show we've ever done yeah and it's just us and it's just, just, just you just you and i just just two brothers shout out to rick and morty <laughs> <laughs> if you liked the show and want to hear more from us if you got to this part you clearly like us so <laughs> Follow us over on our Twitter accounts, CMX Collective for all things podcast, or you can find each of us individually at Dallas underscore comics, at Ann Comics, and at Lou underscore comics. 
If you enjoyed the show and want to show your support, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening and give us a five-star review and we'll read it off on the show. Um, and finally, feel free to email us with your questions or comments at, for the show at thecomicscollective at gmail.com. And we will see all of you next week for our much more put-together episode with Lexi on... What are we talking about? What is the little-known comic? Um, saga! <laughs> We're finishing what? up Saga. Any reason? Is there anything special happening this month? I just can't I can't put my finger on it. Why, why come back to Saga after all this time? Yeah, for anyone that's curious why we didn't finish Saga right away, Saga's coming back from hiatus. All you naysayers and doubters, people told me it wasn't coming back. People said it was done forever. Saga 55 drops Wednesday, January 26th. And to celebrate, we're reviewing the final three volumes. So get ready. Get hyped. We're going back to the greatest comic ever written. As a prelude to our month of love in February, where it's going to be all lesbians all the time. (laughs) I win. It is. And bone, which is not not about all that. But it's it's about Mickey Mouse. (laughs) (laughs) Bone is a common euphemism. So basically. Basically, the month of love, folks. But yeah, write us in your questions about Saga, Volume 7 through 9. Join in as we read Saga, Volume 7 through 9, and flood your Twitter timeline with it. Let's bring on some Saga love. We got this. It'll be great. It's going to be a good time. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.